I'm Patrick O'Mara. Welcome to Profiles from WFIU. On Profiles, we talk to notable artists, scholars, political leaders, and musicians, and try to get to know them personally. Our guest today is Congressman Lee Hamilton. Congressman Hamilton has had a distinguished career representing the 9th District of Indiana. He's been an important leader in Congress, the head of the Woodrow Wilson Foundation, and today an eminent member of the faculty of the School of Global and International Studies and the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Lee, welcome to Profiles. Patrick, I am delighted to be with you. Thank you. Lee, I thought, as I've said, we'd like to get to know the person a bit. So I wonder if you would be willing to talk a little bit about your childhood, your youth. I was intrigued to see that you're the son of a Methodist minister, and your brother is also a Methodist. In a way, this household that you grew up in influenced your thinking and influenced who you are. Would you like to tell us how? Well, I'm sure it did. Uh, I was born in Florida. My father was a pastor of a uh, United Methodist Church there. Uh, we, I only lived there a few years. Moved to Chattanooga, Tennessee, and then eventually as a very young man, 7th or 8th grader, uh, moved to Evansville, Indiana. Uh, my father and mother were not uh, politically uh, tuned in. They had a very active interest in international affairs and in American politics. Uh, the dinner table conversation was often on those topics. But my major interest, uh, Patrick, as a young man, was uh, basketball. Yes. And I grew up uh, thinking that the pinnacle of human achievement was to win the Indiana State High School basketball tournament. I had no interest in politics uh, until much, much later. But I'm sure my family, including my brother, uh, made me attuned to the political currents of the day. Now, you moved to Columbus, Indiana, after finishing your law degree. And while you were in practice there, a friend of yours suggested you should go to Congress. And you said, I've got a problem with my mother. <laughs> well, uh, my family grew up in the Methodist Church. That was their world. And uh, my brother uh, followed that world and went in to seminary and became a United Methodist pastor. Uh, I took a different path, and that path was strange to them. A different world. And politics, of course, scares a lot of people. And I don't think they had all that high opinion of politicians in general. Uh, so I had to kind of overcome a little resistance there uh, to persuade my mother, my father uh, was deceased, that uh, politics was the course for me. It didn't take too long to persuade her. And once I got into it, she became quite a a strong partisan. Yeah. Then you returned to go to law school. I came back, still undecided what to do. Went to law school and uh, for three years at Indiana University. Uh, enjoyed myself greatly, but uh, didn't really focus on what I would do uh, until the latter part of my senior year. 
Tell me about the Ninth District. <laughs> you go in there as a Democrat in a predominantly Republican world. Well, the Ninth District had been uh, held by a Republican for uh, oh three decades or more, with uh, one one two year break, and uh, I began to get interested in policy before I got interested in politics, and I finally made up my mind that if I was going to have any impact on policy, I had to get into politics. So uh, I was not so much interested in the state issues. I was interested in the international issues and the domestic issues, and so I uh, focused on the Congress. And I decided to take on a long-term incumbent, uh, I was very lucky. I ran in 1964 for the first time. That was a heavy Democratic year, and I won. Uh, there's a lot of luck in politics. Most politicians do not acknowledge that, but there is. I was very lucky. You catapult onto the national scene quite soon, and yet you take care of the Ninth District. And I was looking at some of the projects. It ranged from post offices to reservoirs, to community development efforts. In fact, when you retired, there was a large map that was covered with a multitude of pins indicating all the projects which you'd help to seek funding for. <laughs> How did you juggle these two things, the local, the national, and the international? You must never forget when you're in Congress that you have to keep in close touch with your constituents. And that means you have to help them on the problems they have. If they need a bridge, you have to help them get the bridge. If they need a reservoir, you have to help them get a reservoir. And if you help them uh, with those projects and are successful, they remember it. So I uh, tried never to forget that my first obligation was to my constituents who elected me. And I always put a priority, not just on community projects, but on individual requests, needing help with Social Security or, or getting the mail delivered on time or whatever the personal request. With so much uh, military activity, I would have almost daily two or three requests to help bring a soldier home for an illness in the family, uh, sometimes to get reassignment. Uh, so you had constant military requests. All of those things sound mundane and unimportant, but they are not. They are very, very important to the individuals involved. And if you help one family in a small town, believe you me, the rest of that town will know about it uh, within a matter of days. Did you fly home on weekends? Or? I flew home uh, almost every weekend. I made 40 trips a year for 34 years. Uh, from Washington to Indiana. Uh, I got to know the airports pretty well. Yeah. And you had a staff in Columbus. I had a staff in the district in Indiana. Yeah. And, of course, I had a staff in Washington. Let's talk a bit about Congress. You know about Congress extremely well. And as I look at Congress today, there's certain things that are worrying. I know you and I once talked about the problem of the omnibus bill. <laughs> it is a problem. Well, it's a huge problem. The Congress uh, 
stands very low in public esteem, as low as it's ever been. It's dysfunctional. It's not working well, certainly not meeting the challenges of the day. And one of the problems, there's a number, of course, but one of the problems is the one you identify. It's picked up a lot of bad habits procedurally. And one of the worst habits it's picked up is that it throws, for example, 12 or 13 appropriation bills, which should be enacted separately, into one bill, the so-called omnibus bill. Those bills are an abomination in terms of good process, very little transparency, no accountability, put together in the dead of night, voted on the floor early the next morning. You don't measure the bill by pages. You you measure it by weight. (laughs) It's a huge bill, thousands of pages, thousands of provisions. And uh, I am deeply worried that the bad habits the Congress has picked up in a process sense are beginning to render irrelevant in many ways the Congress of the United States because the whole process. Look, we've had a process in this country developed over 200 years. It's the process you studied in grade school. Bill is introduced, referred to subcommittee, examined, goes to the committee. Amendments are offered. Amendments are rejected. Debate time allocated on the floor. Same process on the floor of the House and the Senate. All of that is by the boards now, that whole process, and the omnibus bill is rammed through with very little deliberation. The final uh, part of it, there's only one hour of debate, no amendments permitted. So the process is broken down, and that has serious consequences. And one of the consequences is Congress uh, cannot meet the problems of the nation. Another favorite topic of yours, lobbyists. You know, we used to say that the fourth branch of government was the press. I'm not so sure of that. Uh, I'm beginning to think the fourth branch of government is lobbying. Uh, lobbying has become very, very powerful. There are 20,000 or more registered lobbyists in Washington. They all have very specific interests, some good, some bad. But almost all of them, they press for legislation, regulations which benefit their group. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing illegal with it. But it has radically changed the system. And if you want to understand how legislation is put together now, you follow the money. And the money comes largely, not exclusively, but largely from lobbyists. So if you have a bill, for example, that's pending in a committee dealing with uh, pharmaceuticals, the flow of money from the pharmaceutical industry to that committee membership spikes, really goes up dramatically as they're considering that bill. Some of that is in campaign contributions, some of it uh, in other ways. Follow the money tells you a lot about the legislative process today, and most of that money comes from lobbying. Now, lobbying is part of free speech. It's an important part of our system, but it's just become very dominant. And as it has become more dominant, the average voter is less important. 
uh, because the lobbyist is more important. Lee, how does the public look at Congress? I saw a reference that when LBJ was president, the faith level of the public in government was at 80%. I think today it's probably less than 20%. And Congress plays a role in this. What's happened with this popular response to government? I came into the Congress under LBJ. And one of the reasons the Congress stood high at that time was because people sensed that it was dealing with the problems that most concerned them. At that time, Medicare, health care, federal aid education were big issues. People don't demand miracles of the Congress, but they want assurance that the Congress is trying to help them with the problems they think are the most important in their individual lives. Now, fast forward to today, and people have completely lost confidence that the Congress is in it for them. They think the members of Congress are working for themselves, and uh, the result is the public esteem of the Congress, I think it's lower than you suggest. The last I saw is in single digits somewhere around 9, 8, 8 or 9%. So the Congress has lost the confidence of the people, uh, which uh, Congress once had in the period you mentioned. It's been a steady decline. A lot of things have happened in this country that have challenged people's confidence in government. We've had the assassinations. We've had uh, recessions. We've had wars continually. We almost always now are fighting a war. And uh, people uh, see the government stalemated, uh, unable to deal with its problems, and they said this institution's not working. While you and were in, they're right about it. Of that. course, and it isn't. No. While you were in Congress, you actually investigated the whole question of integrity and civility. You were on a commission. or um, yeah. Tell us a little about that. Congress is a difficult place to work. And the reason it's difficult is because you deal all the time with uh, tough issues that require argument. You're in a subcommittee, you're arguing. It's confrontational. <laughs> you're in a committee, you're arguing. Uh, you're, you go to the floor of the House, you argue. So almost every relationship uh, is confrontational. you got people who feel very strongly about issues. They're on different sides of it, and uh, you try to bring them all together. In that process, you simply cannot move forward unless you have civility. Civility is the lubricant. It is the essential ingredient to deal with people who you don't agree with. If that relationship is hostile, if you can't sit down and talk with the other guy or the other gal, uh, how do you make progress? Uh, the answer is you don't. So the amenities in politics become very, very important, and you have to find ways of interacting with them that, that get around this confrontational environment. It's important to have social engagements. 
It's important to get to know their spouses. It's important to learn about their families. And it's important to know what their interests are and how their part of the country differs from your part of the country. Uh, and the more you get to know these people, true in all walks of life, uh, the better able you're to deal with them. Although the ground rules seem to have changed, the Tea Party, the 2016 campaign, all point to increasing incivility. Are we beyond reform? Oh, I don't think we're beyond reform. There are rhythms to our political life. Uh, we're in a rough patch right now for sure. Uh, but we've got to keep, look, we've got to keep confidence in the system. What's the alternative? You've got problems in this country. You've got to try to deal with them. Right now, we're having a lot of trouble dealing with them. But that probably will pass. Times will change. I hope they will change. I think they will. And we'll be able to attack these problems again. Now, I understand there are a lot of forces at work today that are going to be hard to overcome. But uh, uh, you see, the, the American voter today is uneasy. Uh, the country is changing in ways that make them nervous. Indiana is not quite like it used to be. Uh, we got a lot of new people coming in. Uh, it's not as homogeneous as it once was. There are different uh, racial, ethnic, religious groups than there were a few years back. And that makes people uneasy. And when you have wages that are stagnant, you get a lot of people getting kind of angry. And that's happened too. And wages for most Americans have been stagnant for the last couple of three decades. And that means they haven't had any increase in income. And so the American dream, our children, my children will do better than I did and so forth, that, that great dream of America is slipping. And they are less confident and sometimes just totally pessimistic about the future. Having said all of that, a lot of Americans are doing well. A lot of Americans are optimistic. A lot of Americans are moving forward. And we have to have confidence that the system that served us well for decades, for centuries, will work. But we have to make it work. Yeah. Lee, we've been talking about Congress in the Ninth District. Might be a point for us to hear some music. I know you are always deeply committed to the state of Indiana. Would you like to hear something of Hoagy Carmichael's? I surely would. What about Stardust? Well, that's the, the classic, by all means. And it connects us with Bloomington. <laughs> that's right. I'm Patrick O'Mara. This is Profiles. 
And our guest today is Congressman Lee Hamilton. Lee, I've been reading your recent book, Congress, Presidents, and American Politics. I've enjoyed reading it. It's a book in which you reflect over 50 years. Could we talk a little bit about some of the eras that you dealt with? Uh I'd like to start with the Johnson era. The first thing that struck me in your book was that both the president, the House, and the Senate were Democrat-controlled. That made a huge difference, didn't it? Oh, it made a big difference. But Johnson was unique. His life was the Congress. He was the majority leader in the Senate before he became president. And he was a deal-maker. On his mind all of the time was, how do I get your vote? And he would make any kind of a deal to get that vote. Uh, Did you want a bridge built? He'd help you get the bridge. Uh, Do you want to go see the Pope in Rome? He'd help you go see the Pope in Rome. How do I get your vote? And I know that turns a lot of Americans off, but you need deal-makers in the Congress. You go back to what we talked about earlier, great big complicated country, a lot of interests. You have to strike deals. Nobody is powerful enough to write the ticket himself or herself, Mm -hmm. not even the president. Presidents have to make deals. So I don't think we can disdain or look down upon deal-making. It's part of a necessary process to hold our country together. Johnson was superb at that, of course. He had a great downfall, and that was Vietnam. The Vietnam War, of course. Oh, my. Just tore him up, literally and politically. Lee, it was an incredible period also with social programs. I mean, this is the era of Medicare. Looking back, it has been a tremendous contribution to people's lives. And that was one of Johnson's achievements. That was one of his achievements. Uh, You hear a lot of criticism of the Great Society and of Lyndon Johnson. But what you don't see is repealing the laws. Uh, Medicare obviously has had amendments. We don't do anything perfectly there the first time. Uh, So amendments have taken place. It can still be improved. There are still problems with it. But the fundamental law has stayed in place. Same is true of federal aid to education. Uh, The argument changes back and forth there. Course standards now and all the rest. But the concept of the federal government helping education is, is established. And uh, that all came out of those Johnson years. And the race issue. Huge issue. Uh, Civil rights in 1964, the civil rights bills again in 1965. Uh, I voted on the one in 65, not in 64. But uh, incidentally, one of the things there that was hugely important, it was not just Johnson. He was was deeply committed to civil rights, no doubt about that. He felt it in his bones. But he also had in the Congress some remarkable legislative leaders, a chairman seller of New York, judiciary chairman, Democrat, worked very closely with a congressman by the name of McCullough, Republican from Ohio. And those two men were master craftsmen who understood the give and take of the legislative process and who understood that you had to have bipartisan support even with the big majorities you referred to. So things came together, and we've had a number of such leaders in the past, fortunately. I was intrigued again in your book. You describe a lunch in which 
Congressman Bowling and his wife invite you to a luncheon around their swimming pool. And lo and behold, out of nowhere, LBJ and Lady Bird arrive. And it becomes a very free-flowing, open dialogue. And he stayed and talked and talked. Was that a different era? No, (laughs) I think so. We were on a Sunday afternoon sitting around a pool in uh, suburban Washington. I had cooked hot dogs, I think, for lunch, nothing very special. And I was swimming in the pool and looked up, and lo and behold, here comes the president of the United States walking down uh, the lawn to the pool. And he sits down and uh, grabs a beer and uh, chats. And here I was only a new-term member of Congress. But he took a special interest in me. He came out to Jeffersonville, Indiana, to uh, speak for me, to campaign for me. And uh, I got to know him pretty well. So, yeah, a different era for sure. But those personal connections are very, very important. This is also the era of two major assassinations, Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. Did that have a traumatic effect on the political system? In It had a political effect. It had a national effect. Yes. How could this happen in America? That was the attitude. We were always a peaceful country. Assassinations were something in the past, Lincoln or whatever. And uh, here we had two of the most prominent American leaders uh, assassinated within days of one another. It just shook up the whole country and uh, made us begin to doubt. Now, keep in mind that all these shocks came along. Assassinations, Watergate, uh, Vietnam, all of them put real stress on the system. And that's when you begin to see people losing faith in institutions. The country wasn't performing as well, and we were running into problems. Uh, so, yes, indeed, uh, the assassinations were all part of it. We move to the Nixon era. In looking at your speeches and commentaries of that period, Nixon as a personality is a direct contrast to LBJ. Oh, yes. The free-flowing luncheon to the much more meticulous personality of Nixon. Well, Nixon was brilliant. Incidentally, he had a very close tie to Indiana. His mother uh, grew up just a few miles from Bloomington uh, in Butlerville, Indiana, in uh, Jennings County. And uh, he always, every time Nixon would see me, he would ask me, Lee, how are things in Butlerville, Indiana? Uh, That's where his mother's from. As a young woman, she moved out to Whittier, married, and Nixon was born out there. Nixon was, uh, uh, the thing that impressed me about Nixon so much was his drive, his ambition. He was not a backslapping politician. Uh, Politics did not come easy to him. He was an introvert. He was a scholarly man. But he had underneath there that driving ambition to be president of the United States. And nothing would stop him from getting it. He had a lot of good qualities, Nixon, but he he lost his moral compass along the way. With Watergate. With Watergate, and uh, he disgraced the presidency. And he the helped. paranoia that he had. He was paranoid about... He was paranoid. He yeah. uh, Everybody was out to get him, and it brought about his downfall. 
But his trip to China was a great achievement. In his looking. trip to China was one of the great initiatives of my experience in the Congress. I didn't know about it. I was on the Foreign Affairs Committee. I don't complain about that. I think it had to be done secretly. But it was, in some ways, only Nixon could do it. Uh, Nixon had run against the communists, uh, including communist China. And when he opened it up and uh, went down and sat and talked with the Chinese leadership, it changed the perception of the people about dealing with adversaries. Was Kissinger a valuable asset to Nixon? I think he was, but uh, Nixon kept him at arm's length. Kissinger uh, never underestimated his own influence or uh, own abilities. And I'm not sure of that relationship, but uh, I think Nixon understood that he had a a very able, powerful Secretary of State. But uh, I also think there was a real tension uh, between them. Uh, they didn't work together smoothly, particularly towards the end. And when Nixon got into trouble on Watergate, uh, Kissinger thought he probably ought to run the country, I believe. Yes. <laughs> we get to Jimmy Carter. I once spent a very interesting dinner with Rosalind Carter, and she said something quite poignant to me. She said, do you really think we made a difference? When she was, you know, with the presidency. And as I look at your book... He had important ideas on human rights, on values. But somehow the problem was he fell short, possibly with implementation. You say he was a man with good intentions, and I think that's true. But he was not decisive as a president. Uh, Carter was an engineer. He looked for comprehensive solutions. He's a smart guy. And uh, his judgment, I think, quite good. He was not a politician. He he was a a tremendous campaigner, really good, carried his own briefcase, could give the right signals after Nixon and so forth. But unlike who we talked about a moment ago, LBJ, he was not a dealmaker. He saw the problem. He saw the solution to the problem, and he pushed for a comprehensive solution. Congress doesn't work that way. Congress is more of an incremental body. And so he did have, as you suggest, a lot of problems on implementation. He's not generally considered a great president, Carter, but he did have some very good achievements. He brought human rights to the front in American foreign policy. He got the Panama Canal the Panama Treaty. Panama yeah. And uh, some other things. Camp that David. Really Camp David was remarkable. Camp David. Yeah. So he had some real solid successes, uh, Jimmy Carter, only in for four years, of course. He misgaged the public with that great speech, uh, great only in the sense of well-known, the Malaise speech, yeah. and uh, conveyed to the public a kind of uh, pessimism. And when Reagan came along and morning yeah. in America and all the rest of it, a very optimistic, very sunny, uh, the American people needed a boost and they turned to Reagan and his optimism. And yet Reagan, with his optimism, really shifted the dynamic, the political dynamic, in so many directions. He's canonized by the conservative right. Well, one, one thing is he came along at the right time. The Republicans were looking for a hero. 
And uh, the Democrats had John F. Kennedy, they had Lyndon Johnson, they had FDR, and they talked about them all the time. Republicans never took to Dwight Eisenhower, and they didn't look upon him as a national hero particularly, and certainly not as president, uh, although a military leader. They had to talk about Abraham Lincoln, and Abraham Lincoln was too far back. So they were looking for a hero. Ronald Reagan comes along at the right time, and he becomes the Republican hero. Now, Ronald Reagan talked in a very, very conservative way, but he did not govern that way. He was very pragmatic, and his, his ability was to convey. He was a terrific communicator with the American people in this sense. He mastered television, and he had that wonderful voice like FDR that captured people. And in talking with Reagan, I always got the sense that he was more interested in communicating than he was in formulating policy. In other words, you'd sit at the table with him, and his interest always would be, how do I communicate this to the American people? And, of course, he was very good at that. And his outreach to Gorbachev. He did. And this is, a, you know, he went after the communists every chance he got. But this is his pragmatic strain. He met with Gorbachev. They got along reasonably well, and they struck all kinds of deals on arms control. And incidentally, here's another example. He came to the American people with that phrase that every person remembers, tear down this wall. And boy, they applauded that, cheered him on. He's really getting tough on the communists. What did he do? That week he sent an arms control negotiator to Moscow. So... Tough on the uh, on the public uh, arena, but pragmatic. We got to deal with this guy. We got to strike a deal with him. The Bushes, father and son. Well, your impressions. Uh, Bush forty one was a friend of mine. He was a neighbor. Uh, his wife was a good friend of my wife. A very likable man. Came from the aristocracy of the country but a very down-to-earth, uh, admirable man, uh, very personable. And his great achievement was he was not triumphal in, as we came out of the Cold War, the winter. He did not lord it over the commies. He was very generous in his appraisal of the communists and smoothed that transition as the Soviet Union collapsed And we won, in effect, the Cold War. If you'd had a president at that time who lorded it over the Russians, it would have been a rocky time. But uh, President Bush 41 handled this very, very well, and he deserves great credit for that. His chief advisor, Brent Skokoff, was very helpful in that process, very helpful. And the son? His son is a very different personality and a very congenial man himself. But I think he made a big mistake in going into Iraq, uh, probably one of the largest mistakes we've made in American foreign policy. Did some good things. Uh, had a wonderful program in Africa on HIV positive, And uh, yet I think he, he inherited a um, government that had a big surplus. He ended up with a huge deficit. Uh, he inherited a country in prosperity. He ended up with a country in recession. So he, he had some rocky things happen during his presidency. 
for sure. Lee, you mentioned Iraq, and you were part of a major commission on Iraq. So I'm sure you have some very good insights into the whole Iraqi situation. The chief contribution the Iraq study group made was, I think, realism. Uh, George Bush had been making statements on Iraq that were not grounded in reality. He was way, way too optimistic about what was occurring in that country. The Iraq study group came along. We went to Iraq several times, I think, talked with all of the leaders, and we determined that the situation in Iraq was dire, really difficult, and we, things were not going well. So I think we interjected a note of reality into the, the discussion. President Bush initially was very suspicious of the Iraq study group, and I guess he had reason to be. He thought it was created to kind of criticize him. But over time, he cooperated with us. He agreed with us uh, and came around, I think, to a better understanding of Iraq. But, of course, the whole exercise, uh, we went in for the wrong reasons. We said there were weapons of mass destruction. There were none. Our intelligence was bad. And we began the mistake that we have made so often, it seems to me, in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in Libya. We reached for the gun too quickly. We intervened militarily. The military can accomplish some remarkable things. They can bring stability. They can conquer territory. But what they cannot do is solve underlying economic and political problems. And we've gone into these areas without an understanding that what happens after the military takes control, and uh, we've not worked that out. In other words, you've got to have an exit strategy if you go in, and we have not had. Looking at Iraq, thinking about Afghanistan, thinking about many of the things you accomplished through consensus, the 2016 presidential campaign has been characterized by walls, by the use of force, especially by Donald Trump. Is this a frightening shift? Well, it's very disturbing to me. Trump is talking about steps that he would take as president that are uh, off the charts. For example, uh, one of his recent comments is that uh, about our debt, the U U.S. debt. And he would negotiate uh, so that we would have to pay less than the full amount of the debt yeah. with our uh, creditors. Now, that sounds wonderful when you're sitting there listening to it. But what it does, in effect, is it undermines the entire international financial system. American debt is the primary asset of many countries. America pays its debt in full. That fact has been absolutely critical, crucial to American leadership in the world and to the international financial system. Now, Trump calls it all into question. I'm going to negotiate the debt down. First of all, he's not going to be able to do it, I don't no. think. But if he did it, it would give us chaos or at least a totally new system than we now have. So I think he fires off a lot of things that are not very carefully thought out. And you specialized in the area of immigration. Well, so immigration, the wall too. must be a problem for Bu you. Building a wall is 
just not going to happen. But let's take the business. He's going to deport 11 million people. How do you do that? If you're going to deport 11 million people, you're going to have to have a police force the size of several armies. What it means is you're going to go door to door in neighborhood after neighborhood in America looking for these people to deport them. Then you're going to have to transport them and get them out of the country and so forth. That would take a huge increase in the American police force, all law enforcement, yeah. to get it done. Will it happen? No, it will not. Now, what does Obama do? On Obama says, we got a problem on deportation. We're going to deport those who have committed a crime. Well, that gives you a universe you can deal with, and you get rid of the more undesirable people. A lot of these 11 million people are good, hardworking people <laughs> that help our economy. So how you approach this question of the undocumented worker is big, and I think Trump is uh, not realistic. Lee, this would be another moment for a selection of music. I know you like Indiana composers. Do you think it would be appropriate for us to use Cole Porter's Don't Fence Me In? <laughs> yes, indeed. Cole Porter's a giant in uh, Who's Your History. Entirely appropriate. <laughs> Give me land, lots of land Under starry skies above Don't fence me in Let me ride through the wide open country that I love Don't fence me in Let me be by myself in the evening breeze and listen to the murmur of the cottonwood trees. Send me off forever, but I ask you please, don't fence me in. Just turn me loose, let me straddle my old saddle underneath the western sky. On my caillou. I'm Patrick O'Mara. This is Profiles. And our guest today is Congressman Lee Hamilton. Lee, from Congress, you went to the Woodrow Wilson Center, a really important think tank. Tell us a little bit about the Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson Center is named after Woodrow Wilson. Woodrow Wilson was the only Ph.D. Uh, to become president. He was a genuine scholar. Uh, produced uh, one of the great studies of the Congress, uh, committees of the Congress, and uh, ranks as one of the top political scientists this country has ever produced. Uh, he became president, and uh, he accomplished a great deal, though both domestically and, of course, led us through World War I. Uh, the think tank is named after him because it tries to meld the academic world with the policy world. It tries to use the scholars who have in-depth knowledge about policy problems and give them a forum to meet with government policy makers so that there can be an interchange of ideas. The scholar learns from the policy maker. The policy maker learns from the scholar to the benefit of each, I believe. That's what the Wilson Center is all about. Its role is quite unique. It's not a typical think tank. 
Its whole purpose is to bring together for discussion and dialogue the scholar and the policymaker in a, compa- a comfortable, compatible environment so they each can learn from the other. Was it productive work over those years? Well, I, it's hard to measure, but I think the answer is yes. Let me try to be specific. Uh, we had at one point a scholar who was uh, one of the leading uh, statisticians in the country. She was terrific with numbers far beyond my ability to comprehend. We put her together with the people in the Social Security Administration, and they deal with all kinds of demographics, of course. Statistics is very, very important in most of government. So the interchange between the academic statistician and the people dealing with statistics as a matter of uh, uh, the base for policy was critically important. I can give a lot of illustrations similar to that. I think it was a productive interchange. Were there achievements on the international level at all? Oh, I think so, because we, uh, among other things, the, the Wilson Center has a lot of ties with scholars from around the world. And so we bring scholars to the United States interested in all kinds of policy questions here, some domestic, some international, and give them direct access to high-ranking American policymakers. Dialogue and exchange is critical to the development of policy. This was one of your achievements, of course, after you left Congress. Others have been major task forces that you've been engaged in. You were the vice chair of the 9-11 Commission. And I'd really like to look into not only the findings, but the process. Because the process was not an easy one. No. uh, 9-11 occurred, of course, was one of the most traumatic days in the history of the country. Uh, Did have, still does have, a profound impact on America. And we were given the responsibility by statute of doing two things. Uh, One was tell us what happened on that day. And uh, I think we've done a reasonable, did a reasonably good job of that. Anybody studying 9-11 begins now with the 9-11 Commission report on what what were the facts on that day. The second task was uh, to come up with recommendations uh, so uh, we would protect ourselves against a similar attack. We made 60-some recommendations, most of which were implemented, some of which were not, but well over 40 were implemented. And uh, the process that uh, you referred to was five Democrats, five Republicans, all of us partisans, came together with the mandate I've described, and we made it work. Don't tell me that you cannot reach agreement when you're dealing with partisans. We did, and we did, I think, in a way that uh, benefited the country. It wasn't easy. It took time. Tom Kane was the chairman, very wise man. The first thing he said to to me, this uh, amazed me, he said, Lee, every decision we make in this commission, you and I are going to make together. Very interesting. I was amazed because I came out of the Congress where the chairman called all the shots and the ranking member didn't have much to do with it. And he stayed with that. We acted in lockstep throughout the entire, and we conveyed to the members of the commission 
not only that he and I were going to stay together, but that every decision made by the commission was going to be unanimous or it was not going to be made. We understood that if we had a split decision, six to four, five to five, the recommendation would have no weight. Would it have been different if Henry Kissinger had remained? Yes. Why? It had been much more difficult to reach an agreement. That's what I thought. Uh, the, the original people to head the commission were George Mitchell on the Democratic yeah. side and Henry Kissinger. Yeah. If you go back and see their statements, uh, you can just feel the partisan tension almost from the beginning. Then the president, uh, let's say, well, I guess I was named first by Tom Daschle, who was the Senate leader, to take Mitchell's place. And then uh, Mitchell decided he had conflict of interest. And I began to deal with Kissinger. And Kissinger immediately had this partisan edge to him. And I said, boy, I'm headed for a tough go here. Yeah. Then Kissinger decided he had conflict of interest. So he dropped out. He dropped out. And Tom Kane was appointed. Right. That was extremely fortunate for the country. My impression is that the president at first was not all that eager to see the commission doing its work, but eventually became a supporter. You're exactly right. Uh, He saw the commission as a criticism of him. We had to establish credibility with him. That's George Bush. Yeah, and we did. We met with him and uh, made clear to him, we're not out to hang you, George Bush. We're out here to strengthen the country. And uh, we want your cooperation. And indeed, without that cooperation, we would not have had access to a lot of information, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, and all the rest of it. And he cooperated at that point, and he saw it was to his advantage to cooperate. And he saw that we were not going to hang him, uh, that uh, we wanted to work uh, productively with him. I'm sitting here with an article you wrote with Tom Kane and Lee Hamilton. A new threat grows amid shades of 9-11. You wrote that in 2014. And it's about cybersecurity. Yep. So I thought it would be good to chat, first of all, about the achievements of 9-11. But then this article points to something you might not have even taken into account in the commission. Well, that's right. The, the, the singular achievement, the most important achievement, was that we demanded in the intelligence community, which is a great big community with 20 or more agencies involved, that they share information, uh, that they not stovepipe it, which is a great tendency among national security types. And I think that's worked reasonably well, not perfectly, but it's a much better intelligence community than before 9-11. Now, cybersecurity, you're right. Uh, Most of us never heard of cybersecurity when we started. Uh, But, of course, it's become a very important part of uh, life and of relationship between nations. So cybersecurity has uh, uh, risen to the point where we elevate it as a national security threat. Look, the United States is not in an existential threat situation. Uh, The Chinese are not going to come into San Francisco tomorrow, and the Russians are not going to invade New York. The kind of attacks we're going to be confronted with are attacks more likely not by armies but by hackers. 
and uh, a lot of damage could be done. We have a lot of vulnerability to hacker attacks, and this is what we're trying to alert the nation to. Lee, we're coming almost to the end of our discussion, which has been a very fruitful and interesting one. I do want to ask a personal question. Were the people you really disliked in Congress? I don't want names, but I want to know how you dealt with them. Were the issues that you feel you might not have accomplished what you wanted to? Well, I don't know if I can call up issues. I, I, look, you win a lot and you lose a lot in politics. You cannot expect to win most of the time. And you never win completely. In matter of fact, it's a mistake to win completely. You want everybody to get off that table after the conference committee has met and say, I achieved this. So you look for ways for people to succeed in order to get an agreement that will stick. Uh, sure, I, I sat down and there, there are a lot of people that did not appeal to me. But one thing I learned was if, if there was a person that I did not like in the Congress, I made it a point to get better acquainted with them and try to understand them a little better. This is Profiles. We've been speaking today with the distinguished political leader and recent recipient of the President's Medal of Freedom, Lee Hamilton. Thank you for being with us, Lee. This is Profiles. Thank you for listening. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812-855-1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.